This is Women Veterans Rock on the Hill, the podcast. It's new people, new policies, and new pros for today's women on the move. It was Julia Ward Howe, a writer and abolitionist who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic in the year 1861. The central theme of her poem, then song, was about the favor of God's grace in the battle for freedom and in the battle for liberty. May is National Military Appreciation Month, and it is also the time in which America honors and reflects upon the valor of those who sacrifice their lives in military service to our country. It is Memorial Day, and we are remembering our past, honoring our heroes, and we pledge to never forget. This is our Memorial Day tribute, and on this day, as we honor and salute America's military service members who died while serving the United States Military Armed Forces. Now here's your host, Deborah Harmon Pugh. Welcome to Women Veterans Rock on the Hill, the podcast. And I'm your host, Deborah Harmon Pugh. Today we are hosting our Memorial Day podcast as a tribute and in remembrance to those who lost their lives in service to our country. The first official Memorial Day was held on May 30th, 1868 at Arlington National Cemetery. And Memorial Day was also called Decoration Day. It is a somber reminder of the brave sacrifice military men and women made to keep the United States of America a free and just society. Memorial Day was originally designated to honor military personnel who died in the Civil War between 1861 and 1865. It was in 1861 when the socially conscious female writer and abolitionist Julia Ward Howell wrote the words of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. She wrote it as a defiantly anti-slavery song dedicated to liberty, freedom, and equality in America. And here we are, nearly 160 years later, and the sentiments of class, social, economic, and gender equality still resides at the core of our country's consciousness. In today's episode of Women Veterans Rock on the Hill, we have the pleasure and we have the honor of hosting our very own historian. Our special guest is Captain Janice Gavrin. She's a retired U.S. Air Force veteran and the current vice chair of the Women Veterans Committee of the Pennsylvania Department of the American Legion. Please join me in welcoming Captain Janice Gavrin to Women Veterans Rock on the Hill, the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, we want to thank our sponsors, Comcast NBC Universal Military and Veterans Affairs, for their support of women veterans, military families in the production of Women Veterans Rock on the Hill, the podcast. This episode is sponsored in part by our longtime community partner, Chestnut Hill College. Chestnut Hill College is a certified yellow ribbon institution 
and a military-friendly college. It has a distinguished history of supporting America's student veterans, military families, and the community at large. We are proud to have this fine academic institution as one of our supporting community partners. It's our 12th anniversary, and we're celebrating all of our national and community partners as we work together in building a pipeline of equality in public service, business leadership, and civic engagement for today's women and girls on the move. I'm Janice Gavern. I am the Vice Chair, Women Veterans Committee, Central Judicial Section, Department of Pennsylvania, American Legion. I am a retired captain from the United States Air Force Reserve with 26 years of service, and I am proud to be part of the Women Veterans Rock Podcast Posse. It's the summer season here at Women Veterans Rock on the Hill. Today, we're traveling from Capitol Hill to Montrose, Pennsylvania, near Franklin Hill, in the beautiful countryside of Susquehanna County, all in the great Keystone State of Pennsylvania. We are remembering and paying tribute to our friends and women veterans in western Pennsylvania. This is Janice Gavern. And these are my Memorial Day memories. When I was growing up, uh, Memorial Day was still sometimes called Decoration Day. Folks would go to cemeteries to put flowers on the graves of deceased family members. When we were growing up, my brothers and I were very lucky. Our grandfather, Bill Johnson, used to come to the house every Saturday morning and he would take us either for a walk or a hike or a ride. Memorial Day was particularly special because he would tell us stories of what he remembered about his grandfather, Malcolm Johnston, who had been a Maryland soldier in the Civil War. Now, to honor that great-great-grandfather, I had learned some Civil War songs. So you can imagine us tromping through the woods, singing Just Before the Battle Mother, or Camping Tonight on the Old Campground, or the one that everybody knows, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Now, of all the places that my grandfather took us, my favorite was Nayon Park. It was absolutely my favorite place to walk. There was so much to see and do. You could walk on a trail past a bear den uh, to an enclosure that housed elk. Okay, there was a picnic grove, a zoo, amusement rides, um, a penny arcade, swings, a concession stand, and a swimming pool that was so large, it was called Lake Lincoln. In addition, there was a museum with a concrete pool for ducks and swans out front. There was a small coal mine, a street trolley, and a whole variety of military monuments at different places in the park. I hadn't been to the park um, except to see the Christmas lights in a few years. So most of my Memorial Days the last few years have been spent riding on our American Legion post float in the Montrose Memorial Day Parade. At the end of the parade, <laughs> we would go to the two local cemeteries to perform a, a short uh, remembrance ceremony and to fire a salute. Then we'd present wreaths at the Soldiers Memorial in the square in Montrose. Now we all know that because of COVID-19, 
none of that will happen this year. But I still wanted to do something to remember and honor veterans. Um, you may remember that I have been identifying and recognizing women veterans from the Scranton area for a number of years. And I remembered that the World War I Memorial in the park was supposed to have listed the names of five nurses. So I decided to track it down. Um, Newspapers.com recently added several Scranton area uh, papers to its catalog. So I was able to find the May 31st, 1920 newspaper article in the Scranton Republican, and they reported that 10,000 people went to Mayog Park that day to dedicate the World War I Memorial to the 248 men and women from the Scranton area who died during World War I. Now, I had already identified at least 75 women veterans from the area, mostly nurses, who had served and who at that time were still alive. Now, it happens that all of these women, living and dead, are part of our heritage as women veterans. And by the very act of participating in the military, it was considered evidence that women had accepted the responsibilities of citizens and what followed was that they should be able to vote. Now, unfortunately for the women listed on the memorial who had been prepared to back up their beliefs with action, they died before they were eligible to vote. In fact, it was only three months after the dedication of this particular memorial that the 19th Amendment was actually signed into law for the whole country. Now, I wanted to find the memorial. So I contacted my military comrade, Judge Tom Munley. On May 31st, he and I planned to meet at the park by that very same World War I memorial. We'll have a television camera from WBRE in Wilkesbury uh, who will accompany us. We'll dedicate the memorial with a pot of flowers and we will remember those 248 souls. Now, I will also remember that all six of the women listed on that memorial died of Spanish influenza and pneumonia during the last major pandemic. We won't be 10,000 people to honor them that day. We will be three, but we believe it will be enough. So Janice, I know that you retired from the U.S. Air Force Reserves, but why don't you share with our audience a little bit about your service to the U.S. Air Force Reserves. Okay, my service started when I enlisted in active duty in the Air Force in 1967. I was only a few months out of uh, high school at the time, but I felt that it was important for me to do something to support my country. Now, I couldn't afford to go to college, and at the time, the Air Force was offering the opportunity to get uh, veterans benefits to go to school. So I thought that was a good match. I joined the Air Force not wanting to be a secretary in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So, of course, the Air Force made me a personnel clerk in Texas, but that close counts. Now, the thing is, I saw something completely different, and I got to be part of an organization that I could 
belong to and feel very strongly about. We were working together to do something important for our country. And I liked what I was doing in the Air Force enough that I decided to continue in the Air Force Reserve. Now, in the Air Force Reserve, I was um, a clerk, basically doing personnel records on OTS students. But gradually, the focus changed. And then, about the time that the Air Force was widening the careers that women could get involved in, I was thinking I'd like something more interesting to do than shift papers around. And I decided that I wanted to apply for a job working on the flight line with aircraft. So I became um, first of an aircraft maintenance person uh, on C-130s. I was an apprentice. And then a little bit later, a, a slot opened up as a reciprocating engine mechanic on the C-123s um, out at Rickenbacker Air Force Base. And I took that job and got sent to school and learned how to be an aircraft mechanic. Now, it worked out really well for me and for them because the military loved having people with no prior experience because they could train them up in the way they wanted them to do business. I had never picked up a wrench before in my life. So being able to do this, I did exactly what the Air Force wanted me to do. I followed the textbook, the technical order that told you how to uh, repair an engine line by line. That was the way I approached it. Now, fortunately, the guys that I worked with um, like to kind of broaden their horizons too, so they tended to set us together in teams that had maybe somebody who did the um, <laughs> shade tree mechanic kind of uh, uh, maintenance with somebody who was by the book maintenance, and they put us together. We work together as teams. You know, I really like that. Well, thank you for sharing that because when we talk about your service in the U.S. Air Force, oftentimes you characterize your early years as an individual who grew up in the Air Force. Can you give us an overview of some of the appointments and positions that you held in your service to the U.S. Air Force? So when I started, uh, all the, the jobs that women were allowed to do amounted to basically four things. You could be a nurse. You could be a personnel clerk. You could be an admin clerk. Or you could be an intel clerk. Now, nobody even thought about women doing things like going out on the flight line for a couple of years. But by the time the Air Force was able to sort of entertain that idea. Mm -hmm. um, I was willing to think about it myself, and even though I didn't have background, I went out and tried that. Now, when I had the opportunity uh, a little bit later on to become a crew member, because I actually read the book, and mm -hmm. I discovered that the only requirement to be one of the essential crew members on a C-123 was that you either had to be a fully qualified engine mechanic or a fully qualified 
um, aircraft mechanic. I was mm-hmm. a fully qualified engine mechanic. So I applied for it, and the commander of the operational squadron said, why don't we try this? Now, this was before women had become uh, crew members on a regular basis. So they actually tried it. They put me in the slot, and I flew, I believe, um, around 20 hours as an apprentice flight mechanic on a C-123. And I say that because (laughs) at that point, Headquarters AFRAS noticed that they had assigned a woman to a combat-qualified aircraft, and at that time, that was a huge no-no. They said, you know, it's come to our attention that, that you were assigned here. You can't be in this position. If you want to go fly any place, the only thing that's open is the hurricane hunters down, in, uh, uh, down by Louisiana and Georgia, and mm-hmm. I really didn't want to do that. So they offered me my unit when they had to back me out of that position, said, You're, you've just about uh, completed your bachelor's degree. Would you be interested in applying for a direct commission through something called the Deserving Airman Commissioning Program? And I said, why not? So uh, they found me a slot. I put together the paperwork, and lo and behold, I was accepted for commissioning, and I became a second lieutenant aircraft maintenance officer because I could not fly as a crew member enlisted. I figured one way or the other I'd get to tell them what to do. So I became an aircraft maintenance officer, and I liked that well enough that I stayed with that through the rest of my um, Air Force Reserve career, and I retired. Now, unfortunately, the career field disappeared. Um, Aircraft maintenance officers disappeared. Uh, Later on, I became a logistics officer. That career field disappeared. I'm sorry, in between, I was an explosive safety officer. So I inspected the men and women who loaded bombs on the F-4s at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, and that was my job for a while. I actually put together the safety program for that unit, and I ran it for a couple of years. Um, we never had an accident, thank you kindly, and um, that was one of my favorite jobs because I really felt strongly about working out on the fight, flight line with the guys and the gals that um, maintained them and operated them. Those were the F-4s. So, Janice, so, you're saying that bomb inspection was one of your favorite positions? Yep, I like that. That was quite fun. I actually went to a, uh, to a, uh, an aircraft uh, fair that they had in the local area, and my, my, um, the guys that loaded the bombs on the F-4s had taken the planes there to put them on display, and I used to tease them. I would show up even when they were not on the base to check and make sure that they were doing a good job loading the bombs and using all the safety precautions that they needed to. They were a good group to work with. Every group that I worked with was supportive and helpful. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to say I didn't have a lot of problems 
during the whole 26 years I was in the Air Force and the Air Force Reserve. Well, this is really fascinating. You began to be a trailblazer going in and applying and getting positioned as a crew member and then eventually coming out as a commission officer. We didn't talk much about the time that you served was actually during the Vietnam era. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I am considered a Vietnam era veteran. So as a Vietnam-era veteran and being a trailblazer as a woman working in and around the um, Air Force projects that you worked on, we'd like to hear more about some of your fond memories of serving during the Vietnam era because we know that that was a very tenuous time, uh, but it seems as if you were doing work that you enjoyed, that you were able to grow professionally. You couldn't always see uh, the discrepancy between what was going on where you were working and the civilian community. Mm -hmm. um, don't forget, all of the time that, that I was in, we were going through, you know, the 60s and the 70s um, with all of the commotion with people protesting. What brought it home to me was when I went uh, on leave to go home to my to visit my family, and I was told, be sure that I did not wear my uniform in public, be sure that I did not mention that I was in the military, because I would basically be reviled and spat upon. Oh my. Because that was, the, that was the period of time that we were in. In fact, years later, in the reserves, one of my most memorable experiences was when the reserve unit decided to hold a special ceremony to welcome back all of the members of the uh, unit who had been on active duty in Vietnam at the, at, you know, during the, the period of time that they were actually in Vietnam. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to honor them and officially welcome them back because those people never were acknowledged or appreciated for their service. Now, I wasn't in the ones that were um, acknowledged at that time because I was considered Vietnam era, not Vietnam. And that was a a difference that they made. If you were a Vietnam veteran, you had served in country. Mm -hmm. But the whole organization came together to formally acknowledge those mostly men who had served in Vietnam. And that was one of the most moving experiences I ever went through. How did you and do you feel about the recognition that our country paid and provided to honor Vietnam veterans? I'd like to say I think they've done a wonderful job now. But I need to tell you um, the end of my uh, reserve time. Actually, I had developed um, adult onset asthma. And the Air Force Reserve managed to lose my medical records, so I thought they weren't paying any attention to it. I continued on doing my job. Um, about 18 months after I was diagnosed with asthma, I got a letter in the mail one day that said, um, 
it's come to our attention basically that you have asthma. Asthma is a, a disqualifying condition for worldwide service. You have enough time uh, in the Air Force Reserve to retire, so please put your paperwork in effective, you know, today. So um, I felt uh, devastated, to say the very least. I was basically kind of thrown out without much further ado. Now, I will tell you that not only was I devastated by this, I refused to talk about being in the military or to acknowledge that I had been in the military for another couple of years. And it actually took until an activity that I participated in with my daughter. She was down uh, going to school, and I went down to visit her, and we noticed a sign that said that they were having a Native American powwow that weekend. Mm-hmm. And the two of us said, we've never been to a powwow. Let's go to a powwow. So the next thing you know, we are taking part in a powwow. This was down in Georgia, uh, which we had never seen before. Now, if you've never been to a powwow, you may not realize this, but one of the first activities that they do is they invite all of the veterans in the audience to come up and dance around the circle with them. I looked at my daughter and I went, well, I was a veteran. So I got up and I joined them and in the dance that they did. Now, <laughs> what was interesting about that is at the end of the dance, as you leave the circle, there was, in effect, a, a receiving line, if you will, of Native American men in full regalia. And as we came out of the circle, they shook my hand and they thanked me for my service. And I realized that after mm, 26 or 28, however many years it was, nobody had ever thanked me for my service before until those Native Americans thank me for my service. And that has led me into all of the other things that I've been involved in because the feeling that I got coming out of that uh, circle was something that I wanted to pass along to other women veterans who had never experienced that um, thank you for your service. And that's what I got started doing with the American Legion when I started going to the um, Gino Murley Veterans Center and doing something to honor the elderly women veterans there. That was what was in the back of my mind when I was doing that. I wanted to pass along the feeling of being recognized and honored and remembered for what I did to those elderly women veterans. Because you can imagine, you know, the Korean War veterans and a couple of World War II veterans that were in the the veterans home at that time, you know they had never been thanked for their service. So that's how I got started doing some of the things that I did in the American Legion. I am very um, appreciative of those members of that powwow circle that had enough wherewithal and insight to be able to invite veterans to the circle and thank them for their service. And I think that 
as we look back at the time that men and women served in Vietnam, our country did um, not didn't do a very good job at thanking people for their service and for their sacrifice and for their dedication and honoring them for the things that they did to keep us safe and to provide safety and security in so many places around the world. So um, I, I thank you for not only your service but for that story because I didn't know that that was the thing that made you begin to feel differently about how you had to work with uh, the public and um, those who had retired and seniors in their service. So please tell us how your service in the military prepared you for the American Legion. And then I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the American Legion in your service today. I suddenly felt that I needed to talk to somebody else who understood my military background and what I had been through. And when I looked around, the only organization near me that was able to do that was the American Legion. Okay. So I <clears throat> joined the American Legion. And I wanted to um, belong someplace like I had belonged when I was on active duty and when I was in the reserves. Back in um, 2010, I was actually diagnosed with breast cancer. And the thing is, the breast cancer uh, saved my life because my daughter was taking me to the hospital in Scranton for pre-surgery testing for the breast cancer when I had a brain aneurysm on the way. Now, I, I spent uh, about mm, 14 days in the hospital I had three brain surgeries, and I woke up one day, and I found myself laying on my back with things plugged into my arms and my head and the back of my head, and I felt um, that I was there for a reason. I had nothing to do with surviving breast cancer and uh, all of the chemotherapy and the radiation and the brain surgeries and having the aneurysm fixed. So I was there for some other reason. So I decided that I would be on the lookout for um, something to do to give back for the fact that I had been saved, basically. And um, that's when I joined the American Legion, and I joined the uh, the Grange, which is a farm organization out here in the country. Now, I joined the American Legion because I wanted to talk to somebody else that knew about the flight line, and for a number of years, I didn't do much with it. I just would show up um, every couple of months at the monthly meeting, so I'd be able to kind of talk to other people people that knew what I was talking about. And then gradually I realized that wasn't enough. I wanted to do something, you know, in the back of my head, that powwow. I wanted to do something for women veterans because I looked around and I could see that nobody knew that much about women veterans. So I started with the activity to honor 
the elderly women veterans at Gino Murley Veterans Center. And my perspective was that um, I was one person. So I would look around and see what was one thing that I could do to make women veterans more visible and to honor those elderly women veterans. And that's what I started doing. And then a little bit further on, I said, well, I need to start talking about our heritage as women veterans. So when I'm doing the key to honor the elderly women veterans, I'm also learning stories about women veterans and about how we have gotten to the point that we are today based on what women veterans have done over the last, you know, 150 years or so. So I started doing more to research them and tell stories to those elderly women veterans to show them how far we have come. So it's really nice to be able to talk about the women air service pilots back in 1944 and the fact that today we have women who have been the commander of the space shuttle mission. We have women who are F-35 pilots. We have women who fly with the Thunderbirds. I mean, the amount of change that we have seen in the last hundred or so years as far as women veterans are concerned is amazing. And I want to make sure that that story gets out there. Janice, recently you got a promotion in your work at, at the American Legion. You were recognized for the amazing things that you've been doing and working with women and keeping the history and the culture alive. What were you recently promoted to? Well, right now I am one of seven members of the newly created Women Veterans Committee in the American Legion in Pennsylvania. Now let me tell you, this was basically historic. The, the American Legion had not uh, considered doing anything about women veterans in particular. And um, I helped uh, get that whole process started. I want to recognize you for the work that you've done, but it's also important for me to share with our listeners why we consider you to be our own in-house historian. And I <laughs> think that it is important that these stories about women who served, who served in um, uh, very courageous careers in supporting uh, the United States of America even before they had the right to vote. So we are very fortunate here at Women Veterans Rock to have a member, a delegate like yourself who can keep us connected to the important and valuable history of women in the military. So I thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate your passion because if it wasn't for individuals like yourself to be able to connect the history of women um, in, in our early and historic years, we wouldn't know that to pass on to our up-and-coming generations of military women. As we close, are there any closing words that you would like to share with our listeners about the recognition of Memorial Day here in America? Yes, tell your stories. It's important, especially for young women, to hear the story of uh, women who have been involved in the military. 
and it's important for them to possibly research um, their family history to find out um, who the women were that were involved in the military. There's lots of stories out there for us to find. You just have to make the effort to go out and look. I agree. I agree. Thank you. We are honored to have you to have shared Memorial Day here with us at Women Veterans Rock on the Hill, the podcast. It has been our honor to have you here, to hear your voice, to share your wisdom, and to listen to your historical perspective on this Memorial Day. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We thank Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated, a national enduring partner of Women Veterans Rock, for their longtime support and for their shared vision of service, inclusion, and equality. This episode of Women Veterans Rock on the Hill, the podcast, is sponsored by the Healthy Caregiver Community Foundation, where we are dedicated to building better communities. For more information on how to become a sponsor, visit our website at www.womenvetsrock.org. And there's one last thing before we go. Memorial Day has rightfully earned a long list of time-tested tributes and traditions and recognition programs. Today, we encourage you to remember and honor all of the Memorial Day tributes that are presented to you in words and in song. Please don't disregard its importance. Don't forget why it exists. And remember not to let politics keep you from rendering honor and respect to those who served and sacrificed their lives for you and for me. Now, Posse, take us home. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth his trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Christ was born across the sea in the beauty of the glory that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching.